0: Welcome to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I'm Chef West Stepp, and I'll be your host for Outer Banks Raw, a brand new podcast coming from the Outer Banks. We're going to be talking about food, fitness, lifestyle, you name it, that Outer Banks state of mind that y'all love so much. You want to plug in? Tune in here. This podcast is brought to you by Edible Photography and Marketing Ovx. Edible Photography and Marketing OVX is a local company providing affordable solutions to small business and entrepreneurs in the Outer Banks, backed up with 18 years of experience in the market. Visit EdiblePhotographyOVX.com to learn more. Now, let's get this podcast started. Hey, this is Chef Westep, and welcome back to another edition of Outer Banks Raw, right down here on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Today, we have a good friend of mine, Miles, Miles Daniels. We work right across the street from each other. He's over at Twitty, and of course, I'm over at NC Coast, and we have created a heck of a friendship, and Miles has got a lot of experience to share with us because he's born and raised down here on the Outer Banks. Long family history and a lot of projects he's got going on and uh, I want to welcome you to the show today, Miles. How you doing, buddy?
1: Wes, it's great to be with you. I know we've been trying to schedule this for a while, but it's been a busy busy summer here on the Outer Banks. We're we're rounding uh, the third base here headed towards the home stretch in terms of just ahead of Labor Day, so we finally made it happen and congratulations. I've been listening to the podcast. Great group of guests, diversity in terms of storytelling, and I love all you're doing to help us continue to put the Outer Banks on the map.
0: Well, I appreciate you. But first of all, you just started a new project called WOBX. WOBX. Can you you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Just for a little bit of
1: context here, I grew up on the Outer Banks, and we'll talk about that, Right. and moved away for about 23 years, first in Wilmington, North Carolina, where I went to school and studied film studies, and then I moved up to New York City where I was a film and television producer-director, and then spent the last 12 years out in San Francisco working in Silicon Valley in corporate communications. So I came back home in 2019, December 2019, to take on a role at Twitty & Company as the head of communications there, and we have done a, a number of projects, books and built a studio up in Kerala. And we had the idea for WBX.com, which is a new media company in partnership right. with Twitting Company that focuses on the business news of the greater outer banks. So if you think about more metropolitan areas like Raleigh, for example, you have the Triangle Business Journal or in right. Richmond, you have the Richmond Business Journal. Most of these areas have some publication media outlet that focuses on business news, economic growth in our neck of the woods, uh, the visitor economy is important to those stories. And we have wonderful media companies in the region, but none that focus strictly on the business news of the area. And we call it the greater Outer Banks because a lot of our visitors think about the Outer Banks as the area kind of between those bridges. But when we think of the region as it relates to our workforce, as it relates to housing, that's everything from Elizabeth City up in Pasquotank, Pasquotank on down through Currituck, and of course, Dare County and what we know of as the outer Banks, So that's why we use the term the greater outer banks. So we launched about three months ago. September 1st will be three months. And it has really taken off. We're getting great feedback, great engagement. Our numbers are looking good in terms of readership. We're getting a lot of readers outside of the market right so when guests and our homeowner partners are going back to their homes up in richmond or dc or new york they're still
0: following the news that's taking place here on the outer bank so that's encouraging to see knowing that these visitors have not just visitors they have a vested interest in how their outer banks moves forward and where's my role come into play they're looking for that opportunity and they need the source I love that about this region. I mean, if you go onto the Twitty and Company
1: Facebook page, for example, our marketing team world class and they'll post wonderful photos of sunrises and surfers and just things that you would see if you're visiting the Outer Banks and the comment sections. Section is flooded with folks who are no longer here for their week vacation, but they're saying, "I miss my Outer Banks. I love my Outer Banks. I can't wait to get back to my Outer Banks." And Wes, I've traveled all over the world and country, and I can't think of anywhere that I've traveled where once I've left to go back home, I'm still following the news or the, you know that area on social media. But that's the case here. Yeah, you're right. As a good friend of mine said, who recently discovered the Outer Banks a couple of years ago, she said, "Miles, it just gets in, in, into your bones." Yeah. and I think that's a good way to describe it. The Outer Banks definitely does that, and we certainly are seeing that with. Where were you born and raised and all that stuff? I was born and raised on Roanoke Island in the little fishing village of Wanches. So if you visited Roanoke Island, you know the southern tip of the island is a fishing village. And then you have Mantio on the northern side. Both of which were named after the chiefs. Indigenous tribes live there. So you had the chief Juanquis, now Juan Cheese, and Manteo Manteo. Right. And so I grew up in Juanchese. My family first arrived there in seventeen thirty six, Wes, if you can believe that. Wow. This is before the Revolutionary War, it's before the signing of the Declaration of Independence or drafting of the US Constitution. So that's when the family first arrived and started planting roots there on the island. And were they fishermen? Well, initially, it's interesting because of shoaling. Now, Wanchi's, of course, is a world-renowned fishing village, boat-building community. But at the time, because of shoaling, the channels weren't deep enough for ship traffic, boat traffic. Now you have the big troll boats and party boats that go in and out of there. But it was more livestock. So cattle and pig and sheep and then farming, you know, peas and corn and potatoes. So initially, the family made their livelihood through livestock, both on the northern and southern tip of Roanoke Island. In fact, you can go to Island Farm, which is a wonderful place to visit if if you're on the Outer Banks, and you can get some of that history. That's another family, the Etheridge family. But our family, the Daniels, when William Daniel arrived from Massachusetts, he had befriended a doctor there who owned land on Roanoke Island, Belcher Noyes, I think was his name. And he asked William to come down and take care of the livestock. And he owned half the island at the time, wow. so he granted that land to William Daniels, and that's where the family took root. So almost like I said, 300 years ago,
0: you got a huge family too, correct? Huge family. You would expect
1: that to be the case with, yeah. With, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, two very famous family members that that I think have really interesting stories john daniels there's the famous photo of the wright brothers john right. daniels in 1903 was working for the killdevil hills lifesaving station and he befriended the Wright brothers when they first came over and would help them in terms of unloading the, the boat because there were no bridges at the time, right. unloading the boat. And the day, 1903, when they decided, hey, we're going to try this flyer out and see if it works, I think it was Orville Wright handed him what was a camera. I don't know that John had ever seen a camera. I know he hadn't used one, you know, five by seven inch lens, which now, you know, your lens on an iPhone is the size of a beach pebble, you know, right. like that hands him this thing and says, hey, if, if this works... Then I want you to squeeze the bulb, which is going to trigger the shutter. And they didn't even know if, if that if it had worked until they got back to Ohio and developed the film. So I think there were four flights that day, Wes. And on that fourth flight, a gust of wind caught the wing and turned the plane around. And It was getting ready to crash. And John ran towards it to try to salvage the plane from crashing entirely and got caught up in the wings as it was tumbling over. And he used to joke on the island that he was the first survivor of a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> and then about a de- so he's a distant cousin. I think he was my great grandfather's first cousin, if I'm not mistaken. Fast forward a decade later, Josephus Daniels, under then President Woodrow Wilson, is appointed the Secretary of the Navy and appoints under him as his undersecretary a gentleman by the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So Josephus became Secretary of the Navy. And one of the famous stories about Josephus, he was a prohibitionist. Right. And, of course, at the time on Navy bases and Navy ships, there was a lot of drinking. And, and he was going to have none of that. So he uh, proposed, and I think it was called Order Number 99, that prohibited any use of alcohol on Navy bases or Navy ships. Of course, that did not settle well with, with sailors at the time. Right. And the strongest drink outside of alcohol was a cup of coffee. So they would call you know, kind of as an insult, coffee, a cup of coffee, cup of Josephus, which then became known as cup of Joe. So when you hear the term cup of Joe, that also comes from a distant cousin of mine, Wow, whose uh, father also From from the Outer Banks lived on Roanoke Island. And his son became the press secretary for Franklin Roosevelt. Some of the locals here might remember that at one point, Franklin Roosevelt visited the Outer Banks and gave a famous speech ahead of one of the showings of the Lost Colony. And my theory is that Franklin Roosevelt probably ended up here because of his friendship and connections to the Josephus Daniels family.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And that's a piece of history that people would never know that comes from one of their favorite spots to go visit.
1: Well, that's the thing. There's a lot of the obvious history here. Obviously, the Wright brothers. I mean, growing up, for example— We didn't call this area the Outer Banks, so we can talk about that. But when we would go snow skiing or Disney World, you know, with with the family, people would say, where are you from? We would say North Carolina, the coast, where exactly? And we would always use Kitty Hawk as the reference. Some some knew the Lost Colony, the story of the colonist who came over in 1584, but everybody knew Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers, so we would start with Kitty Hawk, and then we'd say, well, we're just south of Kitty Hawk in a little fishing village called Wanchese. But there was no Outer Banks moniker
0: right. at that time. So when did that come about, you think?
1: I think that came, the, I think the earliest reference is a 1932 New York Times article where the reporter referenced the area as the Outer Banks. And then in the 90s, and I, and I believe it was the Outer Banks Visitors Bureau started to use it, locals called it the Sand Bank's. But growing up, the sign up in the Chesapeake region that guides you to US 64 to come on south, most of our guests historically and even today come from the northeastern part of the country. Like I said, Richmond, D.C., Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York. Right. It's at Nag's Head. So growing up, visitors who came to stay on the Outer Banks, even if they were in Kill Devil Hills or Southern Shores or Kitty Hawk, they were in Nags Head. Everything
0: right. north of Oregon Inlet was Nags Head. When I was growing up as a kid, we'd come down here. Sometimes we'd stay in Kitty Hawk, but we'd always say Nags Head. You'd
1: always say Nags Head. And then Hatter, Sonoke, Coke were the banks, and Roanoke Island was Mantio. Manteo. Now, growing up, we would always say we're going up or down the beach. Of course, Wanchese is south. So if we were going across the bridge to Nags or Kitty Hawk to go surfing or to spend time on the beach, you would use landmarks. Let's meet at Jeanette's Pier across from Cavalier Surf Shop. So the Outer Banks really started in around, I would say, mid-1990s, if I had to guess, is when I first started hearing it. Right. And that was also around the time that Jim Douglas, who owned Chili Peppers, right. was up in, I think, Nantucket, And he saw these oval stickers that that had the acronym A.C.K. on them, which was the airport code for Nantucket. And the light bulb went off and Jim said, well, I can do the same thing with Outer Banks. Let's call it OBX. I think that was around 1994. And then he was friends. I remember that. You remember that? Oh, yeah. And then Dave Watson, Southern Shores Realty, the two of them joined forces. And then we started to see those OBX oval stickers here. Of course, now you see them everywhere t-shirts stores are named obx license plates uh, you know just outside of the studio here several of the cars in the parking lot have obx but that was around the 19 i think 1994 again and then i think it was 2009 west that they changed that sign from nags head to outer banks so not that long
0: ago right so
1: what people know as the outer banks as it relates to either you know netflix series or a region of the country or now ford bronco has the outer banks Growing up, we didn't call it that. That's that's a recent development in terms of our, our history.
0: Yeah, well, one thing about growing up in Wanches, okay, which mm-hmm. is a small town, mm-hmm. or small village, correct? Mm-hmm. And you had a huge family, so everybody knew everybody. Knew each other, and you, yeah, yeah. You guys were, you know, it's, took care of each other. Yeah, took care of each mm-hmm. other. It's sort of like a quintessential Mayberry. Yeah, I think know?
1: today the population is two thousand. You know, I think Manio has four or five thousand, if not mistake. I mean, Roanoke Island is is eight miles long by about two wide. Right. So it's a, it's a small,
0: small island. So growing up in a small town surrounded by a lot of family, what was ingrained in you at that point in time? What do you think was unique about your upbringing down there in Wanches with the big family that would inspire you to go ahead and pursue a totally kind of foreign career in that, okay, I'm going to go and and go to New York and do filmmaking. I would say the thread throughout my professional career,
1: whether that's as a journalist initially with a Virginian pilot, then moving up to New York to do film and television, or then Silicon Valley to help companies tell their stories. I love storytelling. You know, my great-grandfather would sit out on the front porch in white fish boots, you know, in a stained t-shirt with a pipe in his mouth, you know, smoking a pipe and tell these great stories, folklore of the region, you know, stories of our family's history. So I've always been fascinated by storytelling and I've always gravitated professionally towards opportunities that allowed me to tell stories, either about people, regions, companies. And those were the opportunities that I sought after, you know, during college and thereafter. And at the time in my life, those opportunities didn't really exist on and around the Outer Banks. So right. I had to go, you know, in, in terms of cutting my teeth, as they say, I had to go to places like New York and San Francisco. But I always knew I'd come back home. As my friend said, it, you know, it gets into your bones. And I yeah. thought I would retire here. I had no idea that an opportunity with a company like Twitting Company w- would surface. But when it did, I, you know, there was no question that I was going to seize that opportunity and get back to the Outer Banks as quickly as possible. But, but yeah, it really was just a legacy of stories, oral history, that it continues to be passed down from generation to generation and and preserved there's lots of preservation on the outer banks and what I like to think part of my role as at Twitty and company is
0: preserving the stories of the outer banks much like you're doing with outer banks raw your mind is uh and I know you said it's in your bones but uh and that's true but what do you think it is i mean what is it is it the peacefulness is it the community i mean there's natural beauty is amazing i un, you know no doubt but there's natural beauty in a lot of different areas, you know.
1: It's all of the above. It's, it's the beauty. It's the community. It's the, the history of these families that have lived here for generations now. It's the landmarks, the lighthouses, et cetera. But if I had to narrow it down, I know when I used to visit, when I lived in New York, San Francisco, i tried to come home at least once a year. And if there right. was a family function, sometimes more. And, you know, San Francisco and New York are high-pressure environments. And as soon as my two front wheels would hit that, be, that bridge coming from the Currituck mainland and you're on either side of you, you have this, these beautiful body of water, bodies of water, something happened. I just immediately decompressed. It was like yeah. something lifted. John Kennedy once gave a speech in 1962, just before the America's Cup. And he said, we are tied to the ocean.
0: And whether we go back to sail or to watch it, we are going back from whence we came. How about the human element with? I mean, how have you seen things change? Let's put it that way. So, you were gone for how long?
1: Almost 23 years. I mean, I grew up, you know, my family, I don't know how many generations, but as far back as I know and can remember, have lived off of the water, survived off the water as fishermen. Right. My father just turned 75. He's a crabber. He goes out every morning. I except, saw a
0: picture on Facebook. Yeah, except
1: yeah. for Sunday. Buddy Davis, a famous boat builder here on the Outer Banks, built his crab boat in 1978. Wes, it's the one he still uses. Before Buddy started building party boats, he built boats for local fishermen and watermen. And my family, my grandfather, started a little hamburger ice cream bistro that's still here called the Snowbird. Oh yeah, and that was over at the foot of Jockey's Ridge. And same, same with a lot of structures around Jockey's Ridge, just shifting sands, started to take over. So he moved that over to what we call the beach road. That's that two-lane highway that cuts through the Outer Banks. So he ran that for a few years. And then he started moving towards the seafood industry, built a fish house, the crab docks. At one point, we had about 20, 25 crabbers who crabbed for my grandfather. And then he built the Outer Banks at the time, only crab processing plants. So 20 or so ladies would would every day come in and pick Pick thousands of pounds of crab meat. So I tried it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in in high school, I did one summer on the docks with my brother, and you're lifting these 100-pound boxes of crabs that come in, and you're stacking them, and the truck goes over to the processing plant. Then we had a little retail store. And so in the afternoon, I would run the retail store, and then later in the afternoon, deliver the crab meat to the restaurants and stores that sold it. And my dad kind of jokingly said that summer, he said, you spent more redecorating the retail store than we've made this summer. So that was my kind of signal that maybe college was on my horizon, right. that, you know, if I was going to do what I thought at the time I wanted to do, it would require leaving the area. No. I learned a wonderful work ethic from both of my parents. I mean, you know, dad gets up still four o'clock every morning. He's out before any, any of the other crabbers because he's got to get back to unload the, you know, the boat and the catch and get it up to market. So I learned a lot watching them, but it was never something
0: that interested me in terms of livelihood. You're either in it, or you ain't in it. There's, you know, it's like the hospitality business. Now, when I'm talking to somebody who's coming aboard and saying, well, I really want to learn a lot of culinary stuff and this, I said, first thing is you got to love the whole business. And and you got to you gotta love it to the point where you're willing to put up with the grind because I don't care if you love it or not, there's always the grind element. For me, my father did the same thing. He grew up, he was in, not in the fishing industry, but you know, he went through the, the paces in management at at and and all of that other stuff. And that's what he thought I should be doing, you know what I mean? And my passion project was always cooking. I don't know. And I just loved the whole restaurant business. So against the grain, I stuck with it. And I mean, I don't know about your all's family, but mine, I know they shook their head going, I don't know what's going to happen with that boy. (laughs) You know what I I mean? (laughs) Very much so. I'm one of five,
1: all three of my brothers to continue to work in in the business. My older brother lives in Ecuador. But, yeah, it was sort of the family business was there and was expected to be passed down from generation to generation. You know, that's just the way that whether it was farming or, you know, being in the fishing industry, as my family has been for, for so long. I mean, I think there was probably a certain expectation that that's just what you do. Right. So my idea of going to college was kind of new and novel to my parents, but to their credit, they supported that and wholeheartedly and have always supported my career. But I've always, you know, dad has great stories of being out on the water during hurricanes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not easy now what the, what these men and women do. I mean, it's, it is really difficult and, and hard work, and you've got to have a lot of grit and tenacity to, to make it happen. And dad always said, you know if you go out every day you always have food on your table. And right? I, and I think about that even in the context of what I do at Twitting and company and have done historically throughout my career is showing up is half the job. Oh yeah. You've got to show up, you've got to work hard. I've always said it's not talent for me, it is tenacity. Right. You know and I learned that growing up in Wanchis, you know, th- those those you are people suit who are up resilient. And show up. You got to suit up and show up absolutely. I tell you what
0: you've won over half the battle if you can suit up and show up on a daily basis at in, in the hospitality business you're definitely management material if you can do that you know absolutely be... <laughs> absolutely the other thing is is i know that you're not in the fishing industry but how do they see the fishing industry has changed what do you hear around the kitchen table there's a lot of concern about how the industry has changed yes you know, my grandfather
1: started the crab picking house and he left the business to my father and at a certain point two things happened is the local crab pickers were literally dying out so dad was bringing in crab pickers from mexico and then at a certain point, in fact, there's a award-winning article that appeared many years ago in the Saint Petersburg Times called "Una Vida Mejor," where they sent Ann Hall, who then won a Pulitzer at the Washington Post, down to Mexico with a photojournalist to be with the Mexican ladies as they travel from Mexico onto the Outer Banks. Spent the full year with our family, but two things started happening: is one is Dad was not able to compete with markets out of venezuela for example right so obviously he couldn't even pick the meat for that price and then i think some of the regulations are impacting the local fishing community so i think there's always that balance between you know making sure that there's always seafood to harvest while at the same time not regulating to the point where local watermen who have been here for these generations aren't able to make a living Right. So I would say if you went down to Wan, Wan-Chi's and did similar interviews, that's probably what you would hear. Right. So there's a lot of concern. You know, dad will tell you, that, you know, there aren't going to be jobs for the next couple of generations or, you know, his grandson and his great-grandson or whatever it might be. I don't know what the timeline looks like, and I don't know how we necessarily fix all of that. But I do know that I'm seeing greater partnerships in terms of the coastal – research institute that we have there in between manio and Wan cheese I know there are a lot of partnerships with the f- local fishing communities trying to figure this out but I think if you were to talk to dad he's he's concerned a- about what the future looks like right but I'm hopeful that there is some middle ground there in terms of regulating and making sure that the harvest is still there while also making sure that that industry is still there for you know my nieces nephews my my father's grandchildren, great grandchildren and, and so I think there's that balance that we have to strike and, and hopefully, like I
0: said, we'll figure that out. Yep. You informed me on something that I really didn't know anything about. And I've been down here for a while, but I'm not nearly as educated as you on on everything that's going on and, and everything that has brought us to this point. You, you mentioned something about A. C. O. C. K. Brown.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Quite a character. Around 1830s, 40s is when we first started seeing visitors come to the region as tourists, right. really. A lot of them were plantation and business owners who lived inland, who were here to escape the heat and humidity. you got to think back, no air conditioning at that time. Right. No vehicles. So, you know, they were coming over horse and buggy. And they would come over by boat and usually dock around Jockey's Ridge. So around 1840 was our first hotel. The Nags Head Hotel it was about probably... Two, two stories, and I think it slept around 200 guests, and it became kind of the, the hub of social activity for those visitors who were here. In fact, the unpainted aristocracy, which are those beautiful, historic Nags Head beach cottages near Jockey's Ridge. Cedar siding, yeah. wraparound porches, the prop shutters. Fortunately, they're still here after you know 150 years. I don't know how because of the number of storms and all that they've weathered. But those are a result of the initial guests who came to the region. And fast forward to around 1930, 1940, of course, that word was starting to get out, including places like Ocracoke. So this hotel owner on Ocracoke had heard about this photojournalist, Acock Brown, who lived in Happy Valley, North Carolina, who was also a bootlegger. So unlike Josephus (laughs) Daniels. So he reaches out to Acock and invites him to Ocracoke just to visit the island, see what this is all about, to better understand how they might, too, have a piece of this pie now called tourism. So Akrock Brown fell in love with not only Ocracoke, but met a lady there and fell in love with her and married her as well. <clears throat> but then, of course, he wanted to see what was going on and get, again, Nags Head, right. which was anything from Oregon Island North. And so he started visiting the region and he would take photographs of beach wells and surfers. And you know, there was a restaurant here where the wait staff would go barefoot and serve tables barefoot. Like he was just fascinated with all these stories around that, like we are around the Outer right. Banks. And he was tenacious, I mean, He would pitch these stories to the New York Times, Life Magazine, Washington Post, and he was persistent. He wouldn't take no for an answer. So he's the one who really started to get the Outer Banks on the map in a big way. And we didn't have all the infrastructure that we have here now in terms of bridges and highways, but they were starting to come. And so around the 1950s, he started what is now the Outer Banks Visitors Bureau, and he was the first director of that. So I always say Acock Brown, in fact, if you drive across the Curtick mainland onto the Outer Banks, the visitor's center there on your right-hand side is named the Acock Brown Welcome Center in his honor. One of those first cousins, Patrick Byrd, who lives in Wanchese, is a great historian as it relates to Acock's life and legacy here. But based on those conversations, at one point on his deathbed, Acock wondered if if he had done the wrong thing, if maybe it had grown too fast here on the Outer Banks and wondered how we were going to be able to sustain that moving forward so there was some regret there in his latter years as to whether or not because he was around enough to see it start to change you know in the 80s when we first started seeing all of that development which is wonderful but we have to figure out the balance again between that and the sustainability of it he did wonder if 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 he he created something that couldn't go back right and what that
0: would look like The genie couldn't get back in the bottle exactly right and i think that leads us to another question and the visitors economy, as you say, Mm -hmm. which is basically a mainstay, Mm -hmm. is it at odds? Well, it was Socrates, the Greek philosopher,
1: said, you know, the secret of change is to focus your energy not on fighting the old, but on building the new. And I think that's really where we are right now right. is, is again, for example, we have a partnership with NC State's College of Natural Resources. We have a fund set up there that's focused entirely on sustainability as it relates to the visitor economy, sustainability as it relates to the environment, the workforce, labor market, the housing market, etc. So with all of these changes, and you look back again, starting with 1584, when the colonists first landed down to the Daniel's family who settled there down to the visitors who started coming here in the 1850s, Acock Brown, now where we are in terms of what has happened post-COVID, if you will. right. Once those bridges reopen in May, it's really a story of change and embracing change and acclimating to change and understanding how to build with that change and accept it while at the same time preserving the integrity of this beautiful region. And there's always going to be that push and pull. Yes. Change is good. Yes. You know, and as we zoom out and look across the horizon, we want those visitors Oh yeah, coming across those bridges. I love to see, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day being our peak season when those, you know, thousands and thousands of visitors are coming across those bridges. But it's not without growing pains. Right. There's always pains when you're growing as an individual or as a company or as a community So I think we're kind of in this next chapter of our evolution of our history as it relates to tourism here on the Outer Banks. And we're all including you and Twitting Company and the region figuring it out and and acclimating as we need to and adjusting as we need to. But ultimately, absolutely, we want those visitors here. We want our seasonal residents here who have invested in these beautiful homes so that these guests have an amazing place to stay
0: and an amazing experience while they're here. We don't want to go backwards on that. We want to move forward. I was asked one time quite a few years ago, and it was actually one of those turning points in my life. You know what I mean? I remember there was a speaker, and he was talking to a whole room of us, it was a management group at an old restaurant that I used to work at, Kelly's, and he said, "Um, give me your definition of the word change, but don't use change or different in the definition. And everybody at the table, there was probably eight or nine of us all wrote something down, you know, a piece of paper, you know, like you do to a speaker. And they're all thinking and putting on their, you know, scratching their heads. I didn't write anything, I don't think. I'm just a chef, so I'm not supposed to know anything. But then at the end, he was looking through all of the pieces of paper, and he said, these are all great answers, which any speaker would say. He said, but my definition of the word change is the willingness to be uncomfortable, Mm. and, you know, it's like there's no amount of change, no matter if it's a healthy change or an unhealthy change, that is usually a healthy change that doesn't come with some sort of uncomfortability. Well, Miles, do you got anything else you'd like to tell me today? No, I just want to say again, Wes, congratulations.
1: It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate all that you contribute to the Outer Banks, whether it's through your restaurants or this great podcast that you've launched, and keep on keeping on as they say. Yeah. You know, we, we love the region and we want to be part of its success. We want folks to keep coming back. I mean, it, it is a wonderful place. And I just, like you, I kind of pinched myself. I've been back almost two and a half years now. And I think, man, we get to do what you know visitors come to do for a week or two throughout the year. I We're know. really fortunate to live in such a beautiful area that's deep in history and culture
0: and, congratulations on this, and I wish you much success. Well, I appreciate your friendship and all the chances you've gotten to help me grow, and I think that's what it's all about, is people helping each other grow in life. So, uh, And the Outer Banks, awesome place to grow. So anyway, thank you so much for coming in today to Outer Banks Raw. I'll buy you lunch. Thank you, Wes. All right. You got it. Good to see you. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, another episode of Outer Banks Raw. This is uh, Chef Weststep, and we really like to thank Miles Daniels for coming in today. You know, the Outer Banks of North Carolina—it's not a zip code; it's it's kind of a state of mind. It's a brand. It sticks with us, and I don't think anyone summed it up any better than Miles. And anyway, thanks again for tuning in to Outer Banks Raw. This is Chef Weststep, your host. Hit follow or subscribe, and we'll catch you next time later.